Well, I should like to address your attention this morning back to this passage that we've been looking at uh, the last couple of days, or last couple of weeks, sorry, back in Luke chapter 15. And I'm going to read uh, <clears throat> beginning in verse 11. Jesus is telling a parable. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the father said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed the gracious Father who deals with wayward sons and calls us home to you. Bless us now, Lord, as we worship you this morning. Encourage and strengthen us through the power of your word and your gospel, working its way through this weak and needy servant. Bless us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, one of the great privileges that I have enjoyed in my life has been to be raised in my family. I am uh, a second generation Reformed Baptist pastor. My father was one before me and indeed planted our church here in uh, Toronto. I grew up in Toronto and, and I, I grew up in a Christian home and that's a tremendous blessing. I was surrounded by the gospel every single day. And uh, in God's amazing grace, uh, being surrounded by the gospel, I came to know of Jesus Christ and to believe in Jesus Christ at a very early age. And I was blessed that I had a father who led our home in, in family worship and instructed us and held us accountable, as did my mother. And I remember as a, a child and, and as a young person growing up, in uh, the home. I remember this story of the prodigal son uh, very well. I heard it many times as I grew up. And as a child, I thought this was a classic, classic biblical gospel story, as it is, of a bad, rebellious child that God saved. And, but even though I knew that, uh, and although I knew that I myself was a sinner, I didn't really identify my, much with the story as in my own experience, as I grew up, I never really went through a period of major rebellion against my parents. And I certainly would not have dreamed of disrespecting them as the younger son does, as we looked at last week. Of course, I, I, I enjoyed the, the, the parable. I especially loved the, the grace of the father. I mean, who could not be attracted to that picture of that, that, that gracious God? Um, represented in the father as he runs out to embrace the wayward son and to bring him back and, and to put his robe on him and, and, to, and to fit him with a ring and, and to lavish him with all of his grace. But truth be told, I enjoyed the story more as an outsider looking in than really seeing myself in the story. It wasn't until much later, actually, uh, when I was an adult, that I started to see myself more in the story. And, and as we'll see, not in a very uh, good light in that sense, but in a very helpful light. Um, one of the things that we need to understand is this is a wonderful gospel story that's helpful for people who have, like many of us, entirely messed up our lives and gone waywardly and overtly and rebelliously against God. In, in, in these ways, to know that there is a God that, that we can't indeed uh, uh, go too far away from God. There is not a sense in which you can outsin God. In other words, there is no one who is beyond redemption. And that's definitely part of the message here in this particular parable for the prodigal son. But it wasn't until I was older and I came across a, a series of sermons that. Um, Tim Keller had preached on Christian virtues, that I began to see myself in this story much more clearly. Uh, because this is a story not just of a loving father and a wayward son, but this is the picture of a loving father and two sons. Two sons. And the real hero and focus of this story, and I think Keller argues this very effectively, is 
the father. And that term prodigal, which means, as we looked at last week, recklessly spendthrift, has less to do so much with the wayward son and more in terms of God's recklessly spendthrift love and grace that he lavishes on both his sons. I have a wonderful dad. I love him very much. But Jesus, in this parable, presents the ideal picture of a father. A father that is so amazingly gracious to his lost son that he's willing to give up everything to bring him home. And we saw this last week after his young son essentially told him to drop dead and give him his inheritance, the father shows incredible grace, incredible repentance, or sorry, incredible uh, restraint and patience and love. And he does exactly what his son sinfully demands of him. The younger man of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. He's selfish and he's driven by all of those things. And this is the response of the father. And he divided his property between them. What the father essentially does is he takes shame on himself and graciously deals with the wayward rebel in his home. And as we said last week, this word for property that uh, is spoken of here is the word, the Greek word bios, which means life. And essentially what the father does is tear apart his life in order to give it to his son. He endures rejection and tremendous loss of honor, and he goes through agony for his son. And this is a beautiful picture of the fatherhood of God. In fact, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, in commentating on us, said that the only thing in the whole story that the younger son asked of the father that he refused to give him was to be a hired hand. He wanted, his father wanted him throughout to be his son. And that's just a, a beautiful picture of God's mercy and grace. How he is patient with us and does not treat us immediately as our sins deserve. Right? He doesn't make us feel the pain immediately. He withholds his wrath and he holds, withholds what we deserve for our sinfulness in order to give us the opportunity to repent before it's too late. But what's interesting in all this is how God's grace is received. And what we see, uh, saw last week, and what we'll see this week, is that the initial response of both the wayward son and the elder brother is one of rejection. Now remember, as we said last week, the two sons in this parable really represent the two groups of listeners that Jesus was addressing. We see this in verses 1 and 2 of our passage, verse, verse 1 and 2 of, of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So that first group is identified as the tax collectors and sinners. And this, this group was outside of Jewish religious society uh, because they didn't follow the ceremonial laws. And even worse, they had allied themselves with the oppressors, with the Romans, and they had, in that sense, left home. They had 
They had become wayward. They had pursued the God of money, the God of, uh, of pleasure, and all of those things associated with this. And so very, very clearly, we can see that, that this is a representative, that group is representative of the tax collectors and sinners. So as they hear this message, this parable that Jesus is giving, they are identifying with the wayward younger son. But there's another group that's also there, right? As we see there in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes. And it's their response to these sinners, to these tax collectors and sinners, that prompts Jesus to begin this series of three parables. Because they can't stand the idea that Jesus would have any relationship at all with the tax collectors and, and sinners. And they really don't understand why they're attracted to Jesus's ministry. And they grumble about it. And that's why Jesus does these two uh, other parables, the parable of the lost coin and uh, the parable of the lost sheep, which we looked at. But it's this third parable that is perhaps the most memorable, the most famous that's there, because it's where Jesus lands his major point for both groups. You see, both of these groups are really ultimately, like all of us, seeking happiness. I don't think that there is really anyone who is born into this world that doesn't want to be happy. It is indeed an ideal state in many ways. But the real problem that Jesus is exposing in this parable is that both groups thought that they had the answer to happiness and both groups were wrong. You see, they thought that they could pursue happiness in different ways. The younger group, or sorry, the, the younger, the, the, the group represented by the younger brother, the tax collectors and sinners, thought that they could find happiness and fil fulfillment through a journey of self-discovery, by going out and discovering the world and doing what they want to do, not being conformed by uh, the, the rules and the structure of their elders. Um, and the, the other group, represented by the Pharisees and the tax collectors, believed that their way to happiness was through moral conformity, by keeping the rules. And both of these kind of attitudes are really sort of present even to today. You see, the Bible speaks to the reality of the human psyche. It understands very clearly our sinfulness and our need for salvation. And it addresses us in our rebellious uh, pursuit of self, self and selfishness, but it also reveals the other ways that we seek uh, to find happiness through self-righteousness, through even religion, even through uh, being very religious in these ways. And the Pharisees were a very religious people. They memorized vast portions of the Bible. They were, uh, they, they were regular and and, and they would know probably more of the Bible than you do, even if you've been a Christian. They had memorized. They were very, very diligent. They were very, very driven because that was the means by which they found their assurance and their happiness was through the pursuit of religious conformity in, for the end of justifying themselves. Well, last time we looked at this, we looked at the first portion of this. We looked at the parable of the wayward son, the one who went to the far country. 
And he illustrates this, 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 this path, as we said, of self-discovery. And that's honestly perhaps one of the most popular ways in our modern age. Um, it's, it's the way that a lot of people want to pursue happiness. It, 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 it puts a premium on the, the wisdom of youth. And it teaches that people must be free to do whatever they want to do, even if it goes against what society says. And in this view, the world would be a far better place if tradition, if, pre if prejudice, um, if hierarchical authorities, if religious influence and other barriers to personal freedom were weakened or indeed done away with, right? So the son basically lives this out when he says to his father, drop dead, give me my inheritance right now. And he goes on and he does his own thing. This is very common in our culture. And sadly, we also see it in our own uh, Christian culture as well. We have children that are raised in our homes and then they go their own wayward way. They reject uh, the, the, the faith of their fathers and their mothers and they go their own way and they, they go their own path of discovery and they think, that, that, uh, that, 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 that those old rules and those old uh, things, that, that that Bible and everything else doesn't have any real relevance to them. And all it does is inhibit freedom and uh, put barriers, unnecessary barriers on people. And so they, they leave the home and they pursue their own freedom. And the younger brother does this for a while and no doubt has fun, right? The scriptures identify that there is a, a passing, a fleeting pleasure in sin. And the younger son goes out and he wastes his energy, his money, his sexuality, his youth, and he's left ultimately with nothing. He ends up, as we see here in the account, jealous of what the pigs have and hungry for their sloth. Again, this is like the tax collectors and sinners. They lived for the moment and the now. But they also want something more. And that's why ultimately they are attracted to Jesus. Jesus shows them that the happiness that they're pursuing is not a true path to happiness and fulfillment. He promises a fulfillment that goes way beyond just having a full bank account and having a full belly, just beyond the physical natural world. He promises a deep, and lasting spiritual relationship, which they ultimately need. This week, though, we're going to look at the elder brother. The elder brother illustrates another way that people try and find happiness through moral conformity or living by the rules. And again, this is the way that the Pharisees lived. They were the chosen ones. They believed that you receive salvation only by strict obedience to the Bible. And they believe that by putting the community standards and presumably in their view, what God's standards were above uh, of individuals, they could achieve salvation and assure themselves of a place in heaven. Of course, they would allow for certain falls, but if we're judged sorry, then we would be forgiven as long as we did what we had to do. And in this view, in, in their view, Happiness would only be achieved through moral uprightness and clean living. Now, there's nothing wrong necessarily with clean living, but it is not 
the path to happiness and fulfillment. Jesus in this parable is providing a criticism on both approaches. But interestingly enough, as many people have looked at this, uh, th this parable, it it's not so much focusing on the younger son. The ultimate force and weight of this parable is on the elder son because he's addressing the issue of the moral conformity path of happiness that the elder brother is doing. We're going to see and examine this morning the elder brother's approach to life as it's revealed in his interactions with his father and Jesus's amazing alternative way to live under two simple headings as we look at this passage here from <clears throat> verse 25 through to verse 32. The first heading will be the lost brother, and the second will be the true brother. Very simple, lost brother, true brother. Well, first of all, let's look at this lost elder brother. He was kind of a missing in action kind of guy. Uh, and I say that because unless Jesus had told us that the father had two sons, which he does back in verse 11 of our passage, we wouldn't know it yet. Would we? I mean, would we even know that he was here? Right? We, all we see is the younger son. The elder brother hasn't done anything significant as yet, which is actually kind of significant, isn't it? Think about that. Where was the elder brother when the father was being disgraced by the younger son? It's very revealing of the elder brother's relationship with the father. In fact, it begins to show us that the elder brother is just as guilty and sinful as the younger brother. You know, he's saying to yourself, well, how does that work? Well, although the elder brother doesn't say to his father effectively as the younger brother does, drop dead and give me your money, he might as well have. Because in Middle Eastern culture, the elder brother's main task in life was to protect his father's honor. That was his job in the situation. And you would think that he would then be jealous to defend his father. You might expect him to step out and to step up at this point when the younger brother comes and says, give me your money, right? Drop dead, dad, I want the money out of this. You might have expected the elder brother to show up and say, hey, listen, that's not okay. You cannot speak to your father that way to rebuke him and to rebuke him in his pride and his arrogance and his selfishness. And you might say to yourself, well, why doesn't the elder brother do this? Well, I want to posit to you that I believe that the elder brother doesn't do this because he was following the same sinful path, just in a bit of a different fork than his younger sibling. How do you know this? Well, What's interesting is, when does the elder brother actually say anything? When does he say anything? When his wealth is threatened. As we noted last week, the division of the estate in Jewish families worked this way. A third would go to the younger brother, and two-thirds would go to the elder brother. So the younger brother coming forward and saying, give me my third, doesn't threaten the two-thirds that belongs to the elder brother. But what, <laughs> when that two-thirds is uh, threatened, that's when he starts speaking up. I might say, so, well, how is, that, how is 
that two-thirds, how's his inheritance threatened? Well, it's threatened because the father has already divided his wealth and given a third of it to the son, which is completely gone. That bank account has been emptied by the wickedness of the son. He spent it in all of his sinful ways. And so what remains is the inheritance of the elder brother. But it hasn't been yet inherited by the elder brother. It's still under the domain of the father. And what does the father do? He brings the younger son back in and writes him back into the will, which means that he's now going to take the elder brother's two-thirds and subdivide that again. He's, he's not saying to the son, you can be a hired man. He's saying, you can be uh, 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 my son again. And you can indeed have this inheritance, even though you squandered the other. This is the amazing, this is the prodigal, the, the reckless spendthrift father, the father of grace and mercy that he shows. And so this is where we see the elder brother speak up. He starts uh, challenging here. It was, a, it was a joyful day, of course, where the, the, the first sort of indicator that, that, things, uh, that, that the son has been received, other than the, the robe and the ring, is this statement in verse 23, um, where the, the father gives this instruction, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And this is the beginning. Now, <clears throat> in our family, we have a, uh, uh, a tradition called the fattened calf. If, if one of us is away for a period of time and we come together, we have like a big meal together just to celebrate. And in our society where food is relatively plentiful, that's not a great sacrifice. But we need to understand in the Middle Eastern context, this would have been an enormous extravagance. The calf would have been kept for weddings. Uh, and like it, it would actually more belong in some sense to the elder brother. Meat was a tremendous luxury. But the lavish spending of God in this situation is a picture of God's grace. The meal is the feast of salvation from sin. They're rejoicing that the son has been saved from his sinfulness. In the end, the younger son the immoral man comes in and is saved, and God delights over him. It's like back in the, the original um, parable, the first parable there in verse 7, where the, the shepherd rejoices over the lost sheep that was brought, brought home. As he says there, he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And this is the joy that's there. This is God's response. But the elder brother doesn't care about the father's joy or the grace shown to the son insofar as it affects the younger son. He couldn't even comprehend God, the reason why the father is gracious to the brother. His response is one of utter anger. And again, we have to ask ourselves, why is this? And the answer is obvious. It's because the elder brother himself is also lost. Just as lost in his moral conformity and religiosity as the younger son was in his supposed freedom. And again, we can see this very clearly because we see that he is deeply angry because he believes 
that the father, representative of God, owes him something. Verse 29 and 30. He says, but he was angry and refused to go in. He refused to go into the, into the feast. <clears throat> his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This is his response. He won't even go into the house. He dishonors his father and he forces his father to come out to him. This is significant. We'll see this in a moment. In both cases, the sons needing redemption require or need, they have no ability in and of themselves to resolve the situation themselves. They need the grace and the mercy of the father. The father does it in his, 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 his grace. Even though he's being shamed by his eldest son, again, a Middle Eastern father would not go out of the party to bring the, the, the son in. It would be the son's responsibility to come in. But he takes the shame upon himself and goes out and pleads with his eldest son. The son who believes that he's owed something for being the good son, for keeping the rules. Now, I want to turn the focus in the spotlight a little bit differently. Uh, as we look at this elder brother, I want to, to, to say, do you find some sort of identification with him? I suspect that there are more than a few of us who share the elder brother's attitudes. Maybe your life is going through challenges right now. Maybe you had an expectation of how 2020 was going to go, and now everything has been thrown to pieces, and everything seems to be falling apart. And you're like, and maybe you're, you're a faithful, you've been, what you think is a faithful Christian, you've done what, you've, what you're supposed to, and what's this? Why is God allowing all these things to happen? Why did I lose my job? Why am I having such a hard time? Why why are, my face, why are we facing such death and sickness? Maybe your life hasn't gone as you planned. Maybe you wanted to be married right now, or you wanted to be in a different situation than you are. There are lots of things in our lives that, that, that don't turn out sometimes the way that we planned or desired. And sometimes we can get angry at God for those things. I remember a friend of mine in university, a girl, uh, she was very angry. I, I, I had the occasion to speak to her on one occasion where she was very angry. And uh, she was angry because uh, one of her friends ended up meeting a godly Christian husband uh, at a bar where she had designed to sin a little. This, this other girl had been pursuing uh, had been backsliding and uh, she was tired of waiting for a man to come into her life she was tired of, on trusting the Lord for a relationship and so she decided to go and pick up a man at a bar and sleep with him and enjoy the the, 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 the fleeting pleasures of sexuality with him and so she went out to the bar to meet uh, to find a guy and 
And who is it? Well, the first guy that she meets was a Christian who actually challenged her with the gospel. And in God's grace, she, uh, th- these, these two talked through it. There was repentance. And this woman who had gone out to sin ended up marrying this guy that she had met in a bar. And she'd gone out to sinfully spend her life with him. And my friend was angry. She, instead of being thankful that her friend was shown grace with a loving Christian husband, she was angry that God didn't punish her, that he didn't punish her. Of course, God could have punished this woman for going out. He could have, she could have ended up with a disease or with a man who abused her. And it was a really stupid and foolish thing for her to do. And it was a sinful thing. But God showed amazing grace to her. But my friend was angry. Do you begin to see this? Like, this is sometimes how we feel. We feel somehow that God owes us. And that that mentality that God owes us something is really one of self-righteousness. If you feel that you don't deserve this pain that you're going through, that you don't deserve the sickness, that you don't deserve this hard hardship in your life, that you've been a good boy or you've been a good girl, you've been a pretty good man, you've kept the rules, you've been a pillar, perhaps, in your church community, always there, week after week, morning after morning, evening after evening. And, and so when something goes wrong, your response is, I don't deserve this. That's the elder brother attitude. And one of the things I want to say is that if that is your attitude this morning, that's a very dangerous place to be. I want you to understand that you may be blinded by the situation or you may be completely blind. You may never have known Jesus Christ or you've forgotten who he really is. Did Jesus live an okay life? Of moral conformity? Was he mostly a good boy? No. Jesus lived an absolutely perfectly morally upright life, better than any one of us. Perfect. And yet he suffered terribly. Why? Why did Jesus suffer? Because it was God's design, God's purpose to destroy sin. And while we're not the son of God in the sense that we are sinless and perfect um, in in that way. God works in us through our situations. God teaches us things through our hardships. And it is a fearsome thing, but God uses the challenges we face to call us to take refuge in him. He's the only one who can help us and provide the real relief, the real comfort and the real fulfillment that we all need. But again, why is the elder brother so angry? Well, there's lots of different reasons, but I think part of it is that he's totally misunderstood his relationship with the father. He's pursuing a life of mechanical obedience. He says, look, these many years I've been slaving for you. Now, he doesn't even address his father with any sort of nomenclature of respect. He addresses him here as an equal. 
which his father in Middle Eastern culture was definitely not. A child was never on the same level as a father in Middle Eastern culture. It would be like completely dismissing him and completely disrespecting him, breaking a commandment. This was him breaking the, the commandment to honor his father and his mother. And this again reveals the heart of the eldest son. He's not serving his father out of love or respect. The fact is that the elder brother didn't love his father. He loved what he got from his father. He wanted the trappings of a relationship with a father, but not a real relationship. He wanted the father for what he could get out of him. And this is kind of a usury relationship. And some of us have experience with this, don't we? We, we meet people who are only interested in what they can get out of you. Not in bearing with you in hard times, as well as easy times in sickness and in health. A lot of people who purport to be Christians obey God for what they get out of it. But obedience to God is impossible to maintain without the real joy of a real relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, then your relationship with God is like this elder brother, more as a slave to a slave owner, not a father, not a son to a father. It's absolutely miserable. It's absolutely drudgery. Without the motivation of love, it's a joyless existence, a joyless obedience. And I want to challenge us because the reality is that many of us who are listening to this broadcast fit more into the profile of the elder brother than we do the younger brother. Maybe some of you do fit into that younger brother. And, and we have a God who has grace that's sufficient for you. But a lot of us fall into that category of the elder brother. And we can see this as we examine our own lives, as we examine our Christian walk. Let me ask you, are you obeying God in your Christian walk, in your Christian life, to get something out of it? Or are you doing it out of a deep love for our God? and for his grace that saved a wretch like me, like you? That's actually a really vital question for us to answer. Why do we do the religious things that we do? Why do we read the Bible? Some of us have Bible reading plans. And it's important that we, we read the scriptures. It's important discipline. We spend time with God in, in reading the scriptures and in prayer. Why? Because we have, a, we, we have a relationship with him, right? If you said that you were married to someone and you never spoke to them and you never interacted with them, then there would be a question, are you really married to them? You might be married technically and legally, but, but not, not on the, the most important levels where it matters. And sometimes we're like this in our Christian life, right? We're, we're just duty bound. Now, it's not to say that duty is a bad thing. Sometimes duty leads to delight, right? If we know that it's our duty to read the scriptures, we're not going to be delighted every time we read the scriptures. But if we don't read the scriptures at all, then we will never achieve delight. So duty can lead to delight. But if all you have is duty and there is no delight, you need to examine yourself. Are you 
really in relationship to God the Father? Do you really know him as your Lord and Savior? Do you have a loving relationship with him? Does the motivation for you to do the things that you do, are you doing them in order in some way to fulfill the, the, the standards that are necessary to get you into heaven? Or are you doing them because you delight in relationship to God, that he has transformed you from the inside out and, and you could do no other but to follow and, and, and to submit to him? See, there's a difference there. The real problem here is that the elder brother viewed his relationship with a father as transactional, more of a slave to a slave master than a son to a father. And his relationship to his father was merely a formality. William Barclay, in one of his commentaries, uh, talks about a Roman emperor, one of the Roman emperors coming home. And, and as you know, uh, when, the, the, when the emperor would come back from, from a campaign, he would have uh, a great um, procession. He would have his, his soldiers go ahead, and then they would clear the path and then do crowd control and block them. And then he would come, and then the captives that they brought in and the spoils of war would come in. And uh, they would come to this great platform in the center of the city, in the plaza. And the empress was on the platform and, and his children was there. And in one case, a little boy, uh, who was the, the, the emperor's son, uh, came off the, 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 the platform and he dodged through the legs of the legionnaires who were uh, doing the crowd control. And, and one of them caught him up and uh, uh, stopped him. and. He said, uh, he said, little boy, you can't do that. You can't, you can't go right to the emperor. And the little boy responded. He says, he may be your emperor, but he's my father. Right? You see, there's a different relationship that's there. And one of the things that we need to understand is that our relationship with God is a real relationship. It's a relationship of dependence and, and grace and and, and one of access, that because we are sons and daughters of the king, we have access. God is on his throne, but God is also in his temple. And the temple is the means by which we come into relationship with him. And as we looked on Wednesday night, Jesus Christ is the temple that, that enables us to enter into the presence of God without any sort of uh, uh, restrictions. Because we are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the means and the gateway through which we have a relationship that is restored with God. Because of his death on the cross, our sins are covered. And so we can boldly approach the throne of grace and have the privilege of sons and daughters in coming into the presence of God. There's a delight that comes there. Years ago, one of our children uh, managed to, I think, escape from the nursery and when I was preaching and saw me preaching at the front and started to move to the front, right? Because they didn't see me so much as the pastor up here, not to be disturbed, but they saw, them, saw me as their dad, one that they're in relationship to. And that is a blessing. That is a blessed relationship. It's not just a formal relationship. It's not a transactional relationship. That's the relationship that the, uh, the elder brother had. 
but he's lost in so many different ways as well. He's, you know, one of the things that we, we sort of don't see here is his response to his brother. He's cold to his younger brother entirely. Looks, look, look at how he describes him there in, in verse 30. He says, but when this son of yours, right? He doesn't say my brother. He says this son of yours, right? It's not mine. He distances himself here. He's dismissed and condemned his brother to hell. He's not a good brother. He doesn't have any relationship. He's isolated from a real relationship with his father, and he's isolated from a horizontal relationship with the people that are around him, even those who would be his equals or even his inferior. He doesn't have a proper relationship with his, his father, but he also doesn't have a proper relationship with his brother. He has no compassion for him. He's lost all brotherly love and concern. And I want to, to, to point this out because I think some of us who are Christians uh, and who have been exposed to the gospel an awful lot of the time, we can tend to fall into this elder brother attitude towards those who are wayward, towards those who are unbelievers. Let me ask you this. What is your attitude when you interact or hear about unbelieving family members or friends or uh, acquaintances? Are you quietly in your heart condemning them as you hear them talk? Or as you hear them talk, does your heart bleed for them as they dig themselves deeper in sin? Do you cry out to God for them? Does your interactions with them make you feel so much like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that? Or is your reaction, oh, how they need Jesus Christ? How they need the mercy and the grace of God? Do you look at yourself, do you look at them and see yourself? Do you have that compassion? Do you see that, but for the grace of God, that's me? Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. Do you see that you could easily be the same as them in their situation? Or are you cold and detached as the elder brother was here? This message is for you this morning. Our hearts are cold. And we need to continually remind ourselves. You see, the gospel is not just for the wayward sinners that are out there. They're for the morally con conforming elder brother type attitudes. The religious people, the people that are here listening to this broadcast this morning. Because we all need the grace and the compassion and the love of the Father. Whether we're the elder brother who is morally good in many ways although in the heart has struggles, or we are the wayward son. We both need the grace of God because we are pursuing happiness and fulfillment in all of the wrong ways. We are idolizing the wrong things. We are not worshiping the God who made us. We're worshiping created things rather than the creator. You see, what makes this son lost is that he feels lost in his relationship to the father. He may be nearby, he may be in the fields, he may be in the church pew, but he doesn't know the love of the Father for him. He says, you never gave me a young goat. Right? 
He wants the relationship of the father only for what he gets out of it. And as a result, he's a miserable man. You see, when you live life by the rules, you never know if you've been good enough. This is the problem with so many of the religions of today. Like if you're a Roman Catholic this morning, when have you ever done enough penance? When is it ever truly enough? Right? When have you done enough penance to cover your sins or the portion that is your responsibility? In Islam, right? When have you done enough to balance the, 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 the scales in Islam? Right? Even Muhammad died without knowing if he was definitely going to paradise, the founder of the religion. Right? Moral conformity. Or in Hinduism, when have you lived a good enough life with enough good karma to come back as a higher enlightened being? When? So here we have a picture of the second lost son. And the second son is the real target of Jesus' message. He's representative of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's consumed with self-righteousness. Yes, the prodigal needs to turn away from his sins. That's part of salvation. And, but the elder pro brother's problem was not so much the issue of direct disobedience and the kind of actions that his brother was taking. The primary issue for both men was the issue in their hearts. Both sought happiness selfishly. Both sought to be the gods of their own domain. Either I'm going to achieve what I want by my own choices over here or by, by obeying the rules. And none of those things are the means by which we need, we come into real relationship with God. Because both of those attitudes rely on our own self-righteousness, working out our own salvation, creating our own path, instead of trusting and looking and crying out and depending upon the grace of the father. He didn't think this elder brother of, that he needed, that he had an utter and complete need for grace. Reminds me of uh, an incident in the life of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous English preacher. He's my father's pastor many years ago. And he was invited to go and speak at Oxford University. And uh, while he was there at Oxford University, he, he preached and gave the sermon. And then there was a, a time with uh, question and answers where the, uh, the, the students could interact. And the room was packed. And, and there happened to be um, a young man there who had questions. He was a very good speaker. And he, was, you know, he said he liked the sermon. And he said uh, that he complimented Lloyd-Jones on his presentation. But then he said there's one thing that he, he had one problem with it. And that the, the problem. of farm laborers or someone else. In other words, it, was, it wasn't really good enough, right? Or it, was, it, was, it seemed to be addressed to, to people that were far worse than, than they were. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones responded, right, to this, this august and, and intellectual audience. And he said, uh, he said, I'm interested in the question, but I don't see the difficulty. He said, I confess freely that though I might be a heretic, and I think he was being ironic here, but he said, I have to admit 
that until this very moment, I'd always considered undergraduates and graduates of Oxford University as being just common, ordinary human clay and miserable sinners like everyone else, and that they had the very same needs as farm laborers or anyone else. What a response. So here we have this portrait of the elder brother. His relationship was mechanical and empty, not as, a not as a son to a father, but as a slave to the master. Do you see yourself in the image of the elder brother? Is that the way, is your attitude of the elder brother the same, the way that you interact with others, right? Or you're cold to them, but it's more about you and your situation. When we gather together to pray, it's important to pray for your request, but do you, do you think that it's worth your time to pray for other people's requests? Do you think it's worth your time to love and serve others? Or is that not really your priority? Right? You've got to focus on your thing. Focus on you. Do you find yourself judging and justifying yourself as you hear sinners around you uh, pursuing their sin? Is your attitude to distance yourself or is your attitude to engage? You see, Jesus is speaking not just to the Pharisees, but he's speaking to you, Covenant Baptist or Covenant Reformed Baptist church attender. You who are sitting there wherever you are this morning. See, this word of God is directed to you. And these paths of happiness that we pursue falsely continue to exist today. But the one that I think is most nefarious is this one, because it seems socially acceptable on the outside. And you see, what we really need is not the younger brother's path or the older brother's path. We need the true brother's path. That brings us to our final point. And as we begin to examine who the true brother is in this passage, we find ourselves in a conundrum. Because maybe you're saying as you read this parable, that grace that the father shows to the prodigal is just too much. You should make him work for it a little bit, you know. He needs to earn a little bit, you know, like, yeah, let him, let him cook for a little bit before you, before you show the grace to him. Otherwise, he's not going to learn, right? He's just going to end up going out and doing it again. Why show that grace in that way? There's no penalty for what he's done. Why, why the father doesn't even slap him on the face, right, and then accept him. That's how, that's how it would have been dealt with. He would have been beaten down in Middle Eastern culture. But instead, we see it's the lavishing of love. But here's where we get to the real heart of the elder brother's anger. You see, the real reason that the elder brother gets angry is because restoring that younger brother is extremely costly to him, right? It's not costly to the younger brother, it's costly to the elder brother. He's the one that's now going to see his two-thirds uh, inheritance, which is now the full inheritance, subdivided even further. And that's really where his heart and his concern ultimately is. Instead of letting the son, the, the wayward son, end up uh, uh, demoted, 
he is going to be accepted and written back into the will. And this is why he's angry. And that's why we see him getting engaged. And again, we see this is a, a picture that is repeated throughout the scriptures, right? We see a murderous sibling rivalry at the beginning of the Bible, right? After an Adam and Eve, what came next? Cain and Abel, right? Cain, uh, the, the, the interesting story in that is that God confronts Cain um, and asks him about Abel. And uh, Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper, right? And the assumption of, of the answer to that question is actually yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You see, Cain killed Abel because he felt that he was owed the, the position of God's favor, right? He was angry and jealous that Abel had the position of God's favor for his sacrifice. He failed to love his brother. He hated his brother in his heart. And that translated into his actions, right? Jesus says, if we hate someone in our heart, we have, we've killed them, right? And Cain not only hated Abel, he killed him. He was not his brother's keeper. So neither brother was helping. Obviously, the younger brother in this parable is, is in a sense, uh, pursuing selfishly. He's not concerned about the elder brother at all, has no relationship with him, and goes his own way. The elder brother is not concerned about the younger brother at all, except when his finances are actually threatened. There is no true relationship, either with a father or with and between the brothers. Edmund Clowney, the late professor of preaching at um, Westminster Seminary, used to tell the story of a young man who uh, was one of a U.S. soldier in the Vietnam War, and he became one of the many missing in action soldiers. And when the family back home could not get any uh, word from their son, the older son flew to Vietnam and risking his life, searched the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother. And it was said that despite the danger, he was never hurt because soldiers on both sides, both Vietnamese, the Viet Cong and the, uh, the American soldiers and, and their allies had heard of the dedicated and, and dedication of this brother to his other brother's welfare and safety. And so they respected his quest. And he became known simply as the brother. The brother, right? Acting as a brother to go and bring his, his other son, his other brother, home. And this is what the elder brother should have done in this situation. He should have gone to the father and asked permission to pursue and to bring back his younger brother. Now, he could only do that at great cost. Only with the sacrifice of the eldest brother could the younger brother be redeemed. Every robe, every ring, every fattened calf, that was now the elder brother's inheritance. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that when the younger brother comes back, he offers to make restitution. But the only thing that the younger son asked of the father that the father refused to give him was to allow him to make restitution. You find that interesting? 
God doesn't want your restitution. Because in that sense, we're saving ourselves, right? We're earning our way back in, in some way. No, that's not a proper relationship of a son to a father, right? We don't earn our keep, right? We are lavishly taken care of. We don't expect our infants to get out there and, and, and start working. Maybe, you know, I don't know, do social media today or whatever it is. Or we don't expect our kids to go out there and farm the backyard and, and pull in their money so that, they can, uh, so that we can feed them, right? We're not making a long-term investment in them. We're not raising children so that they'll take care of us in our old age, although some of us do. That's actually not a proper father-child relationship. No, a father delights over his children, loves them, shows mercy, and is recklessly spendthrift with them. And he models that to his children so that they are gracious and spendthrift with their, and, 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 and they are generous with the grace that has been shown to them. You see, the father showed amazing grace to the younger son. And you would think that the elder brother would come in and be touched by this. What a beautiful picture to see a father throwing away his dignity and going and embracing the wayward son and bringing him back in. And you'd think that that would be a beautiful thing that they would make Hallmark movies about and no one could resist, right? But you'd be wrong because the elder brother resists. He remains outside the door. He disgraces his father. Now, again, sometimes we read this song, this, this parable, and we miss the, the, the juicy bit because we get so entranced with the father abandoning his dignity and embracing the younger son, we don't see the even greater love that is expressed here to the elder brother, right? Because the father's inside, he's celebrating, and the younger brother, with the younger brother, the older brother comes, and he won't come in, and he's having a huff out there. And you'd expect the father to respond and say, ah, oh, come on, are you serious? How could you not be this? And just get angry at the elder brother. But, but he goes here. The father doesn't do that. He goes after the other son. And it's beautiful here. Verse 28. He says, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. And that word entreated in the Greek is an ongoing thing. If we, uh, if we were to translate, you could translate, the father came out and kept on pleading with him. Right? You'd imagine he'd come out, he'd hear the elder brother's uh, uh, response and selfishness, and he'd be just like, I can't have anything to do with you. I can't believe you would do that. And he'd storm off and go in, right? That's what we would expect. Perhaps that's how we would respond in this situation. But no, the father came out and kept on pleading with him. And so the, the beauty of verse 28 is almost greater than what we see in verse 20, where he abandoned his dignity and he ran after the younger son. Here, he, he comes out to his son, and his son, instead of rejoicing, responds selfishly and is blind in his sin, and the father keeps on pleading with him. He doesn't just embrace 
the tax collector and the sinner. He doesn't just love the wayward son. He embraces and loves and pulls back the Pharisee. The religious sinners, those who haven't broken all the rules, perhaps in their minds, in their hearts, they've been pursuing God for all the wrong reasons. In their minds, they're very faithful and, and, and they deserve all these things, but they, they to- they're blind to their own sinfulness. They're blind to their lostness. But the father doesn't dismiss them. He reasons with them. He brings them. And this is what Jesus does throughout his ministry. He reasons with the Pharisees. He calls them to repentance. He doesn't lead them to their just deserts. He proclaims the gospel to them. And the amazing thing is that many of them are saved. In fact, Acts records that there was a great uh, movement amongst the, uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes after Pentecost. But you see, that's because of the Father's love. He pleads. Even when we pursue in selfishness. Here we see the amazing depth and grace of God's love. I love how Dale Ralph Davis puts this. He says, some sinners reek of the hog pen, others of the church pew. Jesus loves them too. Jesus loves the self-righteous, morally conforming, and he loves the wayward sinner. And he shows them mercy and he calls them home. He calls them home. In fact, he not only calls them home, he goes out and he brings them back. It's beautiful. And he establishes them and assures them that they will be blessed. But it's interesting, isn't it, how this all ends? Jesus leaves us on a bit of a cliffhanger. As we see what the younger son does, but what does the elder son do in response to this lavish grace that the father comes and reasons to him? How is this resolved? Where is the proper elder brother? Where is the one that is actually needed? the one who would not just go into the far country, but who would come all the way from heaven to earth to find us. We need someone not only to open up his wallet for us, but to pour out his life. One who would not just pay a a, a small cost, but an infinite cost for our sins. Can you not see that the true elder brother in this is Jesus himself? And as he comes through the path of Luke, and as he sets his face towards Jerusalem, he is setting himself to be the true elder brother, the one who gives up his life in order to reconcile us, the lost and wayward brothers and sisters, to God. He's the one that goes to find us missing in action and is willing to do whatever it takes to reconcile us to the father. You see, when the father says to the elder brother, all that is mine is yours, he says this here to him. That's literally true of Jesus. Jesus said, all of God's glory, he'd equal glory with God, right? 
as Philippians 2 says, he, he had equality with God. He had equality with God, but he did not grasp it. He made himself nothing. Why? He lost it all for us. For you and me. Jesus was stripped naked. His robe was torn from him. And he, he bore the wrath of God naked on the cross. Alone. He took the cup of wrath that should have been the cup of joy. He is the true elder brother. And Hebrews tells us this. Hebrews 2.11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You see, we are wayward family members. And maybe you are someone wandering in the desert of your own circumstances where you are trying and pursuing maybe a mechanical relationship with God or no relationship with God. This message is for you. God sends Jesus. God uses his word to come to you this morning and to confront you with your need for relationship with him. Your need for an ultimate fulfillment found in love and relationship with him as your Lord, your King, and your Savior. And he's coming to you. He's coming to you. Look to him. Cry out to him. Don't rest in your own path. Whether it's a religion that you have embraced, that is one of duty and works, where in some way it relies on yourself to bring about salvation. If it relies on anything that you contribute, then there's no hope. The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is your own sin. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who sent Jesus Christ as the true elder brother to shed his robes, to give you his robe, to give you his blood, to give you his work on the cross for your sins. That is the true elder brother that we all need. Do you know this Jesus Christ? Do you know this father? Do you have that relationship? You can. Cry out to him. Ask him. He is gracious and kind. And he will reconcile you to himself in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercy that you show to us, Lord. Whether we are wayward outwardly or wayward inwardly, Lord, you know our hearts. And you know our hearts need your grace. We need your mercy. And we thank you, Lord, for your deep love and your deep concern for us. And Lord, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us even as we recognize that. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit to recognize our deep need for you and to repent and believe and to come back home. In Jesus' name, amen.